When we look out at the objects in the night sky, beyond the sun, beyond the earth, beyond the solar system, the most prominent sources of light out there, the most classic form of astronomy we have is looking at the stars. Stars are bright points of light. There are hundreds of billions of them in the Milky Way galaxy alone, and somewhere around two sextillion of them strewn throughout the entire universe. And yet, we know so little about them. We have so little idea because they're so difficult to measure how many stars are out there, what types of stars are out there, what's the distribution of them over space, over time, and throughout the universe. This is one of the most fascinating questions that's been with astronomy for as long as the science of astronomy has existed. And yet today, in 2022, we're closer to having an answer than ever before. What have we learned? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Although it might strike you as a little bit counterintuitive, one of the best methods we have for determining what's out there all throughout the universe is to look at the objects closest to us. The faintest objects are only visible when they're very close by. And so if we can take a census, a survey of all of the nearby stars and star types that are out there, that will give us a tremendous window into the greater universe. What types of stars are out there all throughout the cosmos? And here to help us investigate this question and untangle what we know, I'm so pleased to welcome Elliot Vrymut to the show. Elliot is a PhD candidate at Georgia State University and an expert in stars and stellar populations all over the place, especially throughout the nearby universe. Elliot, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited that you are here. So let me ask you, when I look out at the stars in the night sky, I know that Proxima Centauri is the closest star to us. It's about 4.2 light years away from us. Um, and yet, if I look up in the sky with my naked eye, Proxima Centauri is nowhere to be seen. In fact, even if I take a, a good-sized pair of binoculars, I can't find or see Proxima Centauri at all. Um, when I learned that, I was like, oh my, this must be so worrisome uh, that the closest star to us is so difficult to see and find. What is it like to study something where you know, oh wow, if I could see fainter and fainter and fainter objects, I might start to reveal more of them, even very close by, compared to what's classically been known. Is that, is that something that, that keeps you up at night, that gives you a sort of existential crisis when you're looking at the objects that you see and wondering to yourself, okay, that's what I see, but what am I missing? <laughs> that is exactly what it's like. Because you, it's funny because all the stars that we look at, I think 
almost none of them would be visible to the naked eye because we end up, because we're looking at the very low mass stars. And specifically that question of, am I, do I have everything or are there ones that I'm missing is exactly what stresses me out about them. It's exciting though, right? Because it's a lot, it's really exploration in a way. It's that feeling of like going one step further and further into the forest and what's the new space around you. So when you get some new data and you look at it, you say, okay, is this showing me something different? Is there something, some new star here that I didn't see before? So uh, on the one hand, you get really worried that about the things that you're missing. But on the other hand, it's like pretty exciting because you do get to uncover new, new ones all the time. Yeah. I mean, that part has to be exciting as well. I, I remember when I was first learning about stars, not like not like as a kid, but like as a you know as a student of astronomy. Um, I was told that the sun is a typical star, and now that I've learned more about stars, uh, I would no longer teach that to anyone um, because I've learned that yeah, the sun is part of the normal distribution of stars, but that if you said, what's a typical star in the universe like? Uh, the sun is way more massive, way brighter, way hotter, and way more luminous than the, we'll say, the the median star in the universe. Um, if I were to ask you, as an expert, what is the typical star in the universe like? How would you describe it to me? I think you said it exactly right. It's going to be a lot smaller than the sun. So it's kind of funny because whether or not the sun is typical depends on how you're defining what is typical because we have a lot of stars that are a lot bigger than the sun and a lot of stars that are a lot smaller than the sun. But by the numbers, the most common stars are the ones that are about half the mass of the sun and less. And so, I mean, by the numbers, I mean about 75% of stars out there are 60% the mass of the sun and less. So they're mostly these little guys. And stars like the sun, at least in our, in our neighborhood, in our vicinity, are much, much less common. I mean, that's, that's so counterintuitive, isn't it? That's so counterintuitive compared to what we, what we typically hear, right? The sun is just a normal star. Um, and when I started learning this, I was like, well, by, by how much is, is Proxima Centauri something like a more typical star? Because when I think of that one, I'm like, wow, well, that's about, you know, 10, 11% the mass of the sun. But when you get that low in mass, you're talking about a star that is maybe half the temperature of the sun. Instead of like 6,000 Kelvin, it's only 3,000 Kelvin, which means instead of white light like our sun emits, it's going to be red and maybe mostly infrared light that this star emits. And it's going to be so faint. At 10% the mass of the sun, we're talking about a thousandth the brightness of the sun. Is that typical for a star in the universe? Or am I really talking about, okay, like there are more stars that are like this than any other type, but this is also like the extreme low mass end of stars that are out there? No, I'd say it's pretty typical. I mean, a tenth the mass of the sun is pretty extremely low mass, but the frequency of these stars... The frequency of stars goes up as you go 
lower in mass. So, so what you want to be thinking is as, as you go lower in mass, the, how common those low mass stars are go up and up and up all the way till things are not even mass enough to fuse hydrogen and make light the, through the normal processes. So there's probably a lot of stars, a lot, a lot, a lot of stars out there that are just putting out this red light, not a whole lot of red light, a lot of sad, cold planets around them rather than happy, hot planets. Is that, is that what makes a planet happy or sad? Is If it's cold, it's sad, and if it's hot, it's happy? It, you know, it depends on who you ask. If you're, if you're looking for life on those planets, yeah, you definitely need some heat. Um, if you're looking for, you know, if you're not as interested in light, you're just interested in, I don't know, how different materials come together to form planets, then maybe heat is less, less critical and you're interested in the cold ones too. But I'd say a lot of people would rather have a hot. Well, I I'm a fan of life. I mean, I'll I'll just I'll just I'll just own up to it. I'm a fan of life. So, you know, I I think that, you know, all sorts of energy inputs are going to help you and you might be able to have life on these cold frozen planets through like, you know, some sort of geothermal heating or I guess geo means earth. So, we'll just say interior thermal heating cuz I don't know how to say that for a non-earth planet but um but i imagine having more energetic input from your parent star would help you tremendously um but that's that's very interesting you know when after you get past the proxima and alpha centauri system if you start looking well what other stars are close by you have barnard star another one of these red dwarfs you have um a couple of brown dwarfs, which I guess would fall into that category of, um, okay, you are almost massive enough to initiate that hydrogen fusion in your core, but not quite. I think you need to get up to about 4 million Kelvin in your core to initiate hydrogen fusion, and yet you still have these fainter lower mass objects that do produce their own energy. Um, but that don't fuse hydrogen into helium in their cores. And those are these brown dwarfs. Can you talk to us a little bit about what these brown dwarfs are doing and how numerous we think they are compared to uh, the faintest stars, the red dwarfs that are out there? Yeah, so um, I'm a little shaky on this because I was just reading about it today, trying to get to this exact question. How numerous are the brown dwarfs? Because I believe it is that when free brown dwarfs, like ones that are just um, not bound to any other any other larger star, are supposed to be very numerous, are supposed to be more numerous than the low mass stars. And of course, this is really difficult to know 100% for sure, because they're so low mass that they are very difficult to detect because they're very faint. So when you are a person who studies brown dwarfs, you need to, and especially studying populations of brown dwarfs, you need to worry a lot about, okay, what are the kinds of systems that I might have missed and how do I correct for having not seen those? How do I know whether they were actually there or not, even if I didn't see them? So brown dwarfs are supposed to be pretty common, though they are less common if they're in, um, as companions to stars. So a lot of stars are in binary systems. A whole lot of stars are in binary systems, but it seems like brown dwarfs are not so common as companion, binary companions to things, to other stars. So it's a little bit of a weird 
dichotomy there. I'm not really sure what's up with that. Well, let's let's bring up a couple of things then, because this is this is a great jumping off off point. You know, we we talked about at the very beginning. It was my my opening sort of salvo to you that you know, oh boy, you really have to worry about what you're missing, right? When you look out at the universe and you're like, okay, here's what I can see, but I'm only looking number one where I'm looking, and I'm only looking with the limits of the instruments I have. What is beyond that? What are what's fainter? than what I can see, what's what's farther away than what I can see, what's what's less bright than what I can see. And you have to worry like, yeah, okay, there there might be things out there. But when it comes to the very idea of taking a census of the nearby stars, I would imagine that what you have to do is you have to look uh, in all directions on the sky and you have to look... Um, with uh, sort of this extreme bias towards longer wavelengths because the the fainter lower mass stars are all going to be at lower temperatures than our sun. And so if I'm looking at optical wavelengths, right, if I'm looking at my blue filter and my and my green filter and and even my red filter, I might miss a huge number of these really cool objects that are primarily radiating in the infrared. So how have you done it? How have you gone and said, I want to measure all of the stars within 25 light years, 50 light years, 100 light years of the sun? Uh, how, how do you go about making those sorts of measurements? So the tricky thing the, the key thing is to be aware, exactly aware of what the limitations are of your observations. So ideally you would look in redder wavelengths, but sometimes you don't have that available to you. So you want to say, okay, within the parameters of what I can do, let me do everything I can. And if I see something that doesn't fit within those parameters, then I'm not going to count it as part of the census. And then and then you need to rely on, on other people doing other kinds of observations to, to help you fill all that out. So we spend, and so we mostly use telescopes in Chile, for example, to take our observations and we measure distances to all these stars. And the problem when you use only telescopes in Chile, for example, is they're only, this is in the Southern hemisphere. And so they cannot see things that are too far above the equator. So we're not looking in literally all directions because we couldn't see things that I can see from my place in Atlanta, for example. But if we're aware of that and we say, okay, if I saw a thousand stars within 25 parsecs, I know that, that if I know that that's not literally everything out there, then I can extrapolate, say, okay, if this density were repeated over the area that I didn't see, now how many stars are there? And then I can start to get an idea of an accurate census. So, I think, I think the tricky part is that is if you are not looking in your redder wave, the reddest wavelengths, you're not going to get. Then your optical observations are not going to tell you too much about how many many really really faint things there are out there. And so as long as you don't say, well, I didn't see any faint things, therefore they don't exist. Sorry, I didn't see any red things, therefore they don't exist. Then you're having a faithful census, and then you need to make friends with somebody who has IR long wavelength observations and help them do a census too. <laughs> 
<laughs> so oh, I'm getting away from what the original question was. No, 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 you're doing great. And and I'm also uh, I'm also a little heartened by this because if if you were to tell me this, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said like, oh, but you're missing the most important thing or you're missing the most numerous thing or you're you're possibly biasing yourself. But now I don't have to worry about that as much, at least I would think I don't have to worry about that as much because uh, the European Space Agency mission Gaia exists. And as far as I know, uh, Gaia is this fantastic sort of all-sky mission in space that uh, can see into the infrared and that monitors just huge wide field areas of the sky and eventually gets you the entire sky over the course of a year. Uh, so I would think, oh, this is like the whole point of the Gaia mission is let's measure not just all the points of light we see, but also determine where they are in three-dimensional space. Uh, because one of the key things about the Gaia mission, because it operates over the course of a year, is it can measure what we call parallax, where it's the same thing as if you hold your thumb out at arm's length and you close your left eye and then open your left eye and close your right eye and switch back and forth and watch your thumb shift positions relative to everything that's behind it. That's basically what Gaia does, uh, but for stars within our galaxy. And so I would think if Gaia is any good, you should be able to just dive into that Gaia data and pull out what are all of the stars within, you know, like you said, 10 parsecs, 25 parsecs, however far you want to go. And maybe you would have less worry that you're missing some important things. Is that is that fair? Yes, that's exactly it. This is, we've gotten to my favorite topic. So the, the wonderful thing about the Gaia mission is that it is all sky and it's doing everything in a very consistent manner. So this means you have fewer potential corrections you need to do, which means fewer chances that there'll be something you didn't think to correct for and less bias in the data. And there are things that Gaia is less good at than it, than it could be. It's not perfect, but the nice thing is that it's still taking data and we expect there to be more data in two years from now and hopefully a few years, a couple years after that, depending on their funding. So that means it's going to continuously improve over the next five years or so. So I'm really excited to see what comes out of it. But the nice, the nice thing about the Gaia data so far is it is giving us all these distances to so many objects that we did not have necessarily had distances to before or that we only had one distance from one person's measurement or one group's measurement and so now we have a check on that in a really consistent way so a lot of people are doing some amazing things with gaia with really really big samples with you know not just hundreds of stars but thousands and hundreds of thousands of stars which was not possible before gaia just because that's a lot of observing time on the ground to get all that. And it would have come from all sorts of different instruments. So when you know something has been observed so completely, you can really, really come up with some new, really see some new things in the data. You know, but the wonderful thing about it is it's giving us these distances, which allows you to make these wonderful samples. 
I, I mean, knowing where you are in three-dimensional space has got to be so important. Um, can you tell me what some of the worries are if you observe something with your telescope in Chile and someone else observes a different object uh, with their telescopes in the Canary Islands and someone else observes a different set of stars with their telescopes on Mauna Kea. Um, you know, I would think that if we understand optics and instruments and astronomy, uh, that it wouldn't matter or that it shouldn't matter which instruments you use to take your data, that you'd really just be able to calibrate it properly, translate from one image to the other or from one uh, instrument to the other, and and then you'd be able to sort of bring this unified data set together even across different instruments. Some people have assured me, yes, that's exactly what we do and there's no problem. And other people have given me a little pushback against that and have said, yeah, that's how it should be. But in practice, um, things are a little muddier than that. What What's your take on this issue? I think it depends on exactly what kind of science you're doing. So some observations, the trick is there's always, there, there will always be some difference between different instruments, even if they were manufactured in the same, the same facility and are supposed to the same specification. There will always be minute differences. And some science, these differences never come up. Like for example, if you're measuring just how bright something is and you are not measuring it enormously precisely, but just decently precisely. Probably all these different instruments will give you the same answer if you're using the same filter and, and as you say, um, accounting for the optics properly. Now, when you do something like measure distances, it actually requires some really extreme precision. I mean, for example, we use, we, we, we're measuring the positions of the stars on our CCD chip to, to about a hundredth of a pixel as far as the positions go. And from those really precise position, positions over time, we can measure how much they shift from the parallax and get the, get the actual value for the distance. And this has not really been possible to the precision that we have it today, even the pre-Gaia precision, up until the second half of the 1900s, because we just did not have the precision for it. Um, but the thing is, the thing is when you're measuring things to say fraction of a pixel on your on your chip is then the difference between my telescope and your telescope in the Canary Islands and the telescope in Mauna Kea is then the anything that you're not accounting for is then much more of a big deal. And it turns out there's a lot of subtle things that affect how say your CCD chip is warped. All those there's a lot of subtle things that affect that, which affects then the position that you are trying to measure. So things like how humid is it outside today? What's the temperature outside today? You know, what's what's the temperature precisely of the of the coolant in the doer? Things like that. So, in theory, it's possible if you account for every single little thing, but to combine different types of data and things like to get really precise measurements. But in practice, it turns out there are many many tricky little things that you never figure out until you're in the process of doing it and you can make a whole phd thesis out of that <laughs> so this is kind of good news for me because that means there's still more work to do and it's fun but it does mean 
if you're trying to do something very precisely, you need to be a little bit careful. Elliot, you'll be happy to know that you are the 86th uh, Starts With a Bang podcast I've been doing, and I have yet to interview an astronomer who says, okay, and we uh, we solved our problem, and now this part of science is over. We're done, it's over, <laughs> and there's nothing more to be done. Pretty difficult well, that, to that's imagine. that's some job security right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I imagine that this is part of why you are really excited that Gaia exists because now um, all of a sudden every star that you would be looking at that other teams would be looking at it has been measured by Gaia so you have a way to sort of calibrate between observatories because everyone has this same data set to refer to that was taken with the same telescope, the same instruments under the same conditions in space. So no one's contending with the atmosphere there. So you must have a little more confidence since Gaia that we can do our calibrations properly, that we can fold in data from different telescopes in different observatories in different locations under different conditions and be a little more confident that we know how to translate from one to the other, that we can bring a data set together that has data from different instruments because they also all have the same type of data, the same quality data from the same instrument and the same observatory. Yeah, it's an enormous, enormous relief in a lot of ways because as long as people using the Gaia data are aware of the things that Gaia is good at and not so good at, then all you need to do is go check the to make sure that they're keeping an eye on that. And you, now you know, okay, great, they're using good distances, I don't need to worry about that, and I can focus a little bit more on what the results are actually saying, one less thing to worry about. So it's, and, and it enables a lot of new science, like I'm, I have a plan about using Gaia data to improve the way we're doing our science with, with, our, with our measurements of stars positions. So it's, it's really exciting because it's going to allow us to do a bunch of new things. Well, let me ask you what some of those things are, because one of the one of the ways astronomy is generally conducted, and this this may apply to you more or less depending on the specific projects you're doing, is that you use a survey telescope like Gaia to get some basic information about the types of objects you're interested in, uh, and in this case, that would be uh, position and distance. But then what you do is you say, okay, now that I've got my candidate object, uh, now I want to use superior instrumentation on the ground, maybe with a larger telescope, maybe with a special set of instruments uh, to do follow-up observations where you can get more, better, and different science out of it. Um, number one, I guess, is that what you're doing? And then number two, uh, and what are the specific things that you're trying to learn about the stars that you identify as relatively nearby and how do you learn them? So yeah, Guy has been amazing performing samples, that's for sure. Um, so what I've been mostly doing with Gaia has been getting, I have a special interest in binary systems. So the star, it has another star orbiting it very close by and so Gaia, this is something that Gaia so far has not really delivered to us yet. Now, this summer they actually gave us a whole bunch of orbits of binary systems. 
but the orbits are not in the form of what you would observe with, say, high-resolution imaging. So let me back up a sec, I guess. If we, before, before that data release, Gaia is only giving us positions and motions, and it's not going to tell me, say, how quickly another star is orbiting any particular star if it's orbiting within, within a few AU. So I've used Gaia a lot in helping to select stars that are definitely nearby, to be very assured of that, to have an idea of how bright those stars are because they're observing them all in the same set of filters. And based on that, those using those targets, I have sent them to get some high resolution imaging on them so I can resolve the companions to those objects and track how they're, how those companions are moving and get their orbits. So Gaia has been really good in helping us like identify new things to be looking at deeper than Gaia can do because they're good at when when two stars are separated by a certain amount on the sky, Gaia will see them as two objects. But if they're too close, they'll see it as one object. And unless they have mapped the orbit well enough to release it to us, they won't have it. So I'll need to go get it with some other method, some, like other imaging. So what we've been doing with this is we've been saying, all right, well, if I map the orbits of a whole lot of different companions, all sorts of different sizes of M-dwarf companions, are these or do these orbits look different based on what type of M dwarf it is? If it's a bigger one, or if it's a very small one, or if it's not actually a star, it's a brown dwarf. And so that's something that we've been able to do based on the Gaia data, that's for sure. Well, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things that really surprised me when I learned it for the first time is because, you know, just like I had heard the sun is a typical star, and then I learned actually the sun's probably brighter and more massive than about 95% of the stars that are out there in the Milky Way, um, I had thought that the sun was relatively typical and our solar system was relatively typical in terms of that we have a star and the star is orbited by planets and other objects. And it turns out that that's only true for about 50% of the stars in the universe or the stars that we've taken good measurements of. The other 50% are members of multi-star systems and while, you know, I think I think most of them, like 30 to 35 percent, are in binary systems, there's actually a whole significant fraction that are in trinary, quaternary, or even larger numbers of multi-star systems out there. And so when when you're studying the stars that are out there, I, I understand what measurements you would make to say, okay, this isn't a singlet star system like the solar system, this is a binary system. But when things start getting complicated and you've got three, four, five, six or more stars in there, um, what do you do about that? How, how do you untangle how many stars are actually in this thing? It's a mess. <laughs> it's, it's always a mess. Um, it's, I, I really cross my fingers and hope there's not more than three or so in there. So it, it really depends. Sometimes you're lucky and you will see an extra companion or two on the sky and you'll have a distance to it, say measure with Gaia, and you'll notice it's at the same distance as the first star you were looking at. You realize that they're the only way they have the same distance is if they're gravitationally bound. 
So sometimes you're lucky and you just see it sitting there. Other times you'll be looking at something. It's really common actually to look at a system with spectra and realize that in the spectra, you see a Doppler shift that can only be explained if there's another star orbiting it very, very close by to it. So sometimes you see extraments like that. And then sometimes you do the astrometry that we do and see that the position of the star is changing. It's moving back and forth. So you can suppose there's another star there in the system. So all these things happen. Sometimes they have, you're looking at your secondary star and you see another star there. And then what do you do with that is you really cannot do much with it unless you are set up to deal with it. And by that, I mean, what we like to do with with binary systems is we like to fit their orbits and find out exactly what what values describe the orbits. And so you can draw their paths on the sky and figure out figure out where it was yesterday and the day before and 100 years ago. With a triple system or a quadruple or anything like that, you need a really special code to fit it because the motions get really complicated, especially if the if your extra stars are pretty darn close to your original two, then you know you have gravitational the gravitational force forces are coming from all sorts of directions and changing a lot over time. So you really need an orbit fitter that is set up to deal with a system with exactly that many exactly that many stars, which is a lot less common. That's why there are people it tends to be that people either specialize in binary systems or triples and quadruples and higher order multiples because you need if you're going to do those things that are bigger than binaries you need to spend all your time on it cuz it's such a such a mess a fun mess but it's a mess i mean i i can't even imagine how complicated it is i bet because i i can understand some of this like if i if i have a star and it's in a position on the sky and i'm observing it relative to you know the other objects in the sky and I see that it has some periodic lateral motion, some periodic side-to-side -side motion, or a periodic Doppler shift where, um, especially if I'm doing spectroscopy, I see lines shift over time as far as wavelength goes. Then I know it's either moving, if I see the jitter in the motion, I, I can see like, okay, it's moving in the transverse direction, or I can see it's moving in the line of sight direction, and that's one way to tell that there's something else there. And I can understand that, um, okay, if I take a spectrum of this and I see that there are actually multiple lines there, multiple closely spaced lines, maybe, maybe I have two stars. And I understand from orbital mechanics that if you have two objects that are very close together, uh, you can't really get a third object in there unless they're farther away. Um, by a certain amount. And luckily, most of the objects are either singlet or binary systems. But then there's the oddballs, right? You have a bunch, I think something like 10% of the stars out there are in trinary systems. And then you have a star, I believe, uh, Castor, the, the famous naked eye star Castor with, with Castor's twin Pollux up there. Castor, I think, is a sextuple star system, and it's also pretty close by. I think it's less than 100 light years away. So are you just happy to say, you know, let someone else study that? <laughs> or, or is that something where you're like, you know, it's actually really cool how you can determine that there are six members there? 
I think it is really super cool, but this is the problem when you get to around the end of your PhD, you start saying that first thing a lot more frequently. Someone else better put some time into that because I don't have any time right now. So it's, I think, I think really complicated systems like that are, I think they're worth all the time that people put into them. So it would be really, really cool for me to look into it. But on the other hand, I really am so excited if there's experts out there willing to take it on because there is so much information embedded in that configuration. I mean, by that I mean when you have, say, when you have only two stars, okay, you have the one star orbiting the other is what you can think of it. When you have three stars, now you can think of how that third star is orbiting with respect to these others. Is it aligned in the same plane? Is it at an angle sim? And you can imagine if you add more and more stars to that system, now you're adding more and more of that kind of information, say with alignments or with how active each of them are versus how far away from each other they are. There's so much information in there that can that is that is built by how those systems formed and how they evolved over time that someone could spend a really long time going into it and really learning about those things. So I think it'd be really, really cool to do, but I have not taken the time to get into it because I'm noticing that it would be very, very intense. So. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you this because I know, I know we have a lot of variation in the types of systems that are out there. Um, when this is a question I actually don't don't know the answer to at all. I would think that when you form multi-star systems, whether binaries or with greater numbers in there, uh, that you'd be pretty likely to have multiple stars in the system of comparable masses to one another. I'm not even a hundred percent sure why I think that. Uh, but is that common? Is that typical, or is it? equally as common or typical to have stars of very different mismatched masses in the same system as one another. Uh, when you sort of ask like, okay, if this star was born and it's uh, twice the mass of the sun, there's a really good chance that if it has a companion, that companion's also going to be more massive than the sun. Or is it the case that, you know, you can have a, a sun-like star and yeah, it could be orbited by another sun-like star, but chances are it's more likely to be uh, to have a red dwarf, one of those low-mass, red, low-luminosity companions, which represent the most common type of star in the universe. What what's sort of the relative distribution of if you if you identify the most massive, brightest star in your system? What are the odds that another star in that system is going to be similar to versus different from that same star in terms of mass? This is an excellent question because I know there's definitely people studying this. So I'm pretty sure the answer depends on how massive your primary star is. So I think, I think the rule of thumb is if your primary star is more massive, then it's companion star, the secondary star in the system, is more likely to be of similar mass. I think we see, as we say, more stellar twins as you go up in mass. So this is not so much the case with the low mass stars. I know we have so many that are 
the companion is half as massive as the primary or very low mass. And it also depends on how close the companion is to the primary star. If the, if it's, whereas I think if you're closer to the primary star, you're more likely to be a twin to that primary star. So there's a couple different axes on which this depends, right? It depends on how massive your system is, and it also depends on how close the companion is. And the reason the, the reason why it depends, in both cases, the reason for this dependence, I think, comes down to how stars form and which, you know, how, how mass tends to get distributed as it collapses down to, to cores. Well, let's see. If I take a look at that closest system to us, the Alpha Centauri system, I, if I remember right, uh, Alpha Centauri itself is a binary system uh, that it has an A and a B component. And I think the A component is like the sun and the B component is less massive than the sun, but not by an absurd amount. I think it might be like 70% the mass of the sun. So these, I think, orbit each other at about the distance of Jupiter from the sun, that they're, they're pretty close together. They're not super close together, but they're pretty close together. Proxima Centauri is also gravitationally bound to the Alpha Centauri system, but it's only like 10% the mass of the sun, and it orbits much farther away. I think it's like if if the sun were alpha a and jupiter were alpha b i think proxima centauri would be somewhere like when sedna gets farthest from the sun and i think that sedna is still the uh object with the farthest known aphelion from the sun um, so you're talking like a thousand astronomical units away or or you know maybe maybe two percent of a light year away that that Proxima Centauri is actually very well separated from Alpha Centauri A and B, uh, but whereas Alpha A and Alpha B are relatively close in mass to one another, I think they differ by you know thirty percent or so. Uh, Proxima Centauri is way way less massive than either of them. Is that a a fairly typical configuration, it turns out. I don't remember how the mass, how the mass, with how the mass distribution is for the hierarchical. We call this a hierarchical triple because it, well, it's a little bit hard to explain. But when, where there two stars are very close, and then the third one is the oddball, really far away, and. I know it's not really uncommon for there to be an M-dwarf hanging out with in a system with a with a sun-like star, roughly sun-like star in mass. So they do they do happen. Um, I think in triples, especially a lot of the typical typical rules start to go out the window. It's basically it's easier to come up with rules for when you only have two stars that you need to need to describe. So with two stars, high mass you're likely to be a twin. Low mass, you're allowed to be pretty different. As soon as you bring a third star into there, um, come on, Ethan, give me some time. Wait till I've done more research. Wait till I have better data. Wait till I have more data. We're not there. It's, and it's, and it kind of, um, it gets really complicated too if your third star 
if you include third stars that are really, really far from the primary set like that, because now the orbital period is hundreds of years, a thousand years or more, you're not going to have observations that cover that entire period. So you're trying to, we have a little bit of motion characterized, but we really had to extrapolate to, we're basically giving it our very, very best guess about how how widely that that Proxima Centauri is orbiting the Alpha Sen A and B pair. So it's it's tricky. A lot of a lot of people who are doing doing surveys of things like triple systems have to be a lot of they, they very carefully define like the limits of their surveys. Like, am I going to include things that have orbits of a thousand years? Well, then you need to worry about how well is it characterized, and if it's not, if the answer is kind of sketchy, then you know, maybe it's going to throw off your results. Maybe it's not going to be representative of what's truly happening deep down. So this, the different surveys of these things get more and more different from each other and difficult to put together, I think. You start considering really extreme system. <laughs> Elliot, now you've really got me worried because I'm thinking, okay, what are the things that determine uh, the period of a system. And yeah, like distance is a huge factor, right? If you're very far away from a star, it's going to take you much, much longer to orbit it, right? Neptune orbits the sun in 164 years, whereas Earth orbits the sun in one year. And while we have plenty of one-year surveys, we have very, very few 164-year surveys. So the farther away you go, I understand that's going to you know, be much harder to get those long baselines. But another thing that determines the period of your orbit is the mass of your primary star. The more massive your primary star is, the faster an orbit is going to be at the same distance from that star. If I were to replace the sun with, say, Proxima Centauri, um, a planet at the distance of Jupiter would take far longer than the, what is it, 12 years that it takes Jupiter to orbit the sun. We'd be, we'd be talking about like, we'd be talking about many decades for something like Jupiter. For something like Neptune, we'd be talking about many centuries, maybe even a millennium for an orbit to occur, right? This is frustrating. So now when I say we're going to come to the most common type of star in the universe, these red dwarfs, these M-class stars, um, and I'm saying, oh, and is there a red dwarf companion? Is there a brown dwarf companion? Uh, it must be sort of frustrating to think, yeah, I can tell you this maybe out to the orbit of Mercury, and that's it. Um, I'm sure the situation isn't quite that bad, but I also worry that maybe it's not that much better. Yeah, you've hit upon my exact exact worry with MDOR science that it's it's hard to know what's actually happening at scales that are as big as what we know with solar type stars because you have just less mass driving that driving that system and it slows everything down. So. It's funny, we know a lot of things about, about companions that are relatively close in to M dwarfs because when you, if I were to bring that small, very small companion in close to the star, well, now I'm going to, now its orbit will speed up and it's fast enough for me to observe during, 
you know, a normal grant cycle or something. But the mystery is still what's happening really far out there. What What's happening on those things that have like, I don't know, 20 year, 40 year orbits. There's no, in order for me to observe a 20 year orbit, I need, I need to have a 20 year project roughly, or at least a 10 year project. So I get most of it and that's hard. So it's kind of fun in a way though, because it means there's, there's some more work to do. So something that I'm thinking a lot about right now is like, well, how far out could planets be around M dwarfs? Like it depends on how big the disc around an M dwarf is. Um, but do we know about planets that are say on 20 year orbits around an M dwarf? Could that happen? Well, it's hard to say if we don't have the observ observations for it. So, this is kind of my dream of what I would do if I had infinite time and infinite money. That also sounds like just a perfect storm of ignorance, because if if you're not observing the same system, you know, even if it's not continuously, uh, regularly over a long baseline of time, uh, you're not going to be able to get that radial velocity measurement of the primary star. And if you're not observing it with the uh, correct orientation, uh, you're not going to be able to get a transit of that star. And uh, if you are just looking at, say, an M-dwarf system and you're taking the cumulative amount of light from it, you know, if this isn't an eclipsing binary, if this is just a binary system, uh, how much are you really going to be able to tell that if uh, the companion of the M-dwarf star uh, only changes the overall brightness of the system by like two or three percent? So I imagine this is really frustrating because we don't have transit surveys that have this long baseline. We don't have Gaia that has a decade-long baseline of when it's been taking data yet. Um, and, and you know, a, a graduate student's career, uh, if your graduate student is your grad student for 10 years, everyone's unhappy about that, including and especially the graduate student. So, um, you know, this has got to be a worry about, like, okay, you know, for an M-dwarf star, can we even measure something at the distance of Earth from the sun? If it, there were a companion out there just separated by the Earth-sun distance, would I be able to see it in the amount of time we've been looking? I think it's definitely a worry. I think I am, I'm heartened, though, because I think a decent number of people, especially in the last couple of years, are becoming more aware of aware of this potential blind spot. And, you know, it, it doesn't help perfectly because, you know, we all need to keep trying to get jobs, get our careers up and going. But people have a lot of respect for very long, long surveys. And there are a few very long surveys out there. And people are also have a very interest big interest in not waiting for the long survey and trying clever methods to try to get more information out of somewhat shorter surveys. So for example, the, the, the Gaia data, if Gaia goes, if all goes well with Gaia, it will observe for, I think 11 years is how long it can stay cold enough to observe in the perfect scenario. Nice. And yeah, <laughs> I've got my fingers crossed for that 11 versus 10. And so, okay, it's going to be able to observe orbits that are up to 11 years long. 
if it's longer than that, it's not going to see a whole orbit. Well, I think in the next few years, we'll come up with some clever things to do to combine other types of data to at least constrain what the entire orbit of something will be if it's, say, two or three times as long as that 11 years. And I mean, in the, at the same time, I mean, this is not a new thing. People combine, have been combining data for years. But the thing that is really common now is using statistics and different statistical methods to get a better sense of what, which results are likely versus which results are not likely based on how well we've observed, how well we have observed what we've seen. So I think I'm referring to Bayesian techniques, which is, I mean, we refer to it as magic in the, in the field because it's a little bit complicated and I still don't understand everything about it. But I noticed there are enough people working on techniques like this and how do I squeeze more out of this short, short period of data that I think in the next five years or so, we're going to see more and more useful information coming out about things that are not completely observed. So there's hope, <laughs> maybe. No, I, I think it's great that they are like, th it, it's hard to be mad when your data is improving. It's hard to be mad when your data is getting better and you're finding more things and you're drilling into more and more of the details that are out there. Uh, and then, of course, you push your frontiers to, okay, what don't we know? What haven't we measured? What could we be missing to see that space sort of shrink down where there are still unknowns out there? Uh, but they're smaller unknowns than there used to be. It's, it's hard to be mad about that. But I do worry about, oh, like, we found a thing that we hadn't found before, and now I'm worrying that what if these things are really common? For example, uh, if I were to say, what are the three closest star systems to our own? You would say, okay, there's that Alpha Centauri system, there's Barnard's star, and then the third closest system... Uh, I believe was only discovered in something like 2009, uh, which is made up of two brown dwarfs, a pair of binary brown dwarfs that orbit one another. And it's something like six or eight light years away. And it was only discovered thanks to the WISE mission, which did an all-sky infrared survey from space and it found oh look we've missed the third closest star system to us until the 2000s when we finally got good enough and guess what here's a pair of brown dwarf uh you know i guess what you'd call stellar twins or substellar twins and when you find something like that right in our backyard that close to us now i have to wonder okay how many brown dwarfs that aren't part of star systems with other stars are there out there and how many wide brown dwarfs are there and how many isolated brown dwarfs are there and could there be as many brown dwarfs again or even more or almost as many as there are total stars of all other types combined and i bet you that's something that you sort of say Either, yep, I worry about that too, or, well, thankfully, brown dwarfs aren't stars, and I don't categorize them that way, and therefore, when I talk about stars, I don't worry about them. Oh, I know people in the second category. I think, <laughs> I think though, brown dwarfs are so cool. I mean, no pun intended. They're, they're great. Um, I think 
because they have they they seem they seem like there were people there's some people who are really pushing the boundaries of what we can do with brown dwarfs and they're kind of they have this overlap between what is actually a brown dwarf and what is actually a planet if it's if it's orbiting a star we might say it's a planet but if we saw it by itself we'd call it a brown dwarf because there's kind of not a strong consensus about the about the mass limits for it. I think there's a lot of fun science that could happen there. And so, okay, maybe they're not formally stars, except a bunch of them do burn deuterium. So they are making some energy for a little while, but they're, they're totally worth paying attention to. I do worry about, well, I don't worry too much about how many there are out there, but when you were saying that, I was definitely worrying about it because <laughs> yeah, there's certainly supposed to be a whole bunch of them out there and they're going to be the hardest to see. And they're not very massive, so you're not going to see them, you know, tugging on other stars too much or anything, anything like that as a population. I mean, at that point, you have to worry, are we going to be, are we going to need to use the same techniques that we use for like Jovian exoplanets to find them in, in order to really find them? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, that's kind of my line of thinking, like, Maybe the, these boundaries are between different types of things are not so critical. And, you know, I should just go look for some really, really big planets that might actually be brown dwarfs. One of the two, who cares? They're going to be big enough. It'll be interesting. I think that would be just fine. Um, I do think we have more, more high, sorry, more, more red missions coming up, if I, if I recall correctly, or at least people with a strong interest in more IR missions happening. So um, I think we'll be making some more discoveries in the next the next 10 years, especially if this Habex Louvoir thing ends up flying, or Louvex or whatever people are calling it. The, uh, the next NASA flagship mission after the Nancy Roman telescope. There's, there's, there's a lot of debate about what, what the name should be. It's a pretty fun pretty fun thing to ask people so well, well hopefully we'll we'll actually go through a formal naming process and we'll get the community to give input and and astronomers will actually get to select the name this time and everyone will be uh everyone who's unhappy will at least be fairly unhappy instead of unfairly unhappy yeah fingers crossed that's all i ask for <laughs> <laughs> so so let's see we have um, if I look out at what's what's around in the universe as as far as I know it, um, these these really bright stars, you know, the kind that make up like the stars in the Big Dipper or the stars on Orion's belt or like the the really bright ones, the bright blue ones. Um, these are really rare, aren't they? I I used to think that like the stars you could see with your naked eye would be representative of the stars that are out there in the universe. And of course, that's like the number one bias in astronomy is you are always going to preferentially see the brightest and most luminous objects in whatever class of object you're sensitive to. So it probably isn't going to be a surprise to know that overwhelmingly the stars you can see with your naked eye in the night sky are the brightest, bluest, most luminous stars um, and many of them are hundreds or even thousands of light years away. They're not the closest ones. So it would stand to reason then if I wanted to actually know what types of stars are out there in the universe, I would just grab a random volume 
that was rich in stars, like the nearest however many light years or parsecs you wanted within the sun, and try and measure and collect all of the stars in there. Now, when we do that, like you said, most of the stars, uh, I've heard 75 to 80% or so, uh, are are these red dwarfs, are these low mass, low luminosity stars, but that are still fusing hydrogen to helium in their core. And then you have maybe another, you know, range of stars that are sun-like, where if you go to higher and higher masses, there are fewer of them, but each individual star has more mass. Um, and then when you go to the really massive ones, you know, the ones that you're like, oh, someday that star is going to be a core collapse supernova, that might only be like uh, 0.1 or 0.2 percent of all the stars that you make. Um, and, you know, some of them are going to be singlets, binaries, etc. Uh, but I worry if we're only looking and doing a census in this one region of space, in this one region of the universe that's 27,000 light years away from the galactic center in our one galaxy in the plane of the Milky Way, how confident can we really be that the sample of stars we're measuring is representative of most of the stars in the universe? That's a hard question <laughs> because... I, I was just I was just worrying about this as you were describing it because we are in the Milky Way galaxy, right? And the Milky Way has some structure to it. It's got these spiral arms and stuff like that. So if you define your volume wide enough, it's not it's is gonna represent something different than if you define your volume very, very close to you. So, and does this represent all the stars in the universe? Well, I am probably not exactly because the, you know, different, what fractions of different types of stars form depend a little bit on the environment and what kinds of elements are available in the, that gas and stuff. It makes, makes some difference. So one galaxy might, one part of one galaxy is going to be different than another part of that galaxy versus another part of a different galaxy. So... I think you kind of have to just accept that it's never going to be perfect because you're describing something. It's kind of like you're you're making an average of something that is intrinsically varying over space in all sorts of directions, and there's it's never going to be perfectly descriptive of every single part of it. It's just going to be kind of an average. So I don't know. There's no really awesome answer to it. I think. Well, let's let's think about it, right? If I if I wanted to say, okay, um, let's take a look at what we could say about that. Obviously, measuring the closest objects to you, wherever you happen to be, it isn't everything, but it is valuable information. Um, particularly if you can sort of make some estimates as to how long it's been since these stars formed and we we have you know we have ways of measuring stellar ages um because we also know that there's a link between a star's lifetime and its mass right there's there's the saying from blade runner that the the flame that burns twice as bright lives half as long and for for stars the situation's way worse than that if you're twice as massive a star 
as another. I think you only live one eighth as long. So if you get a star that's, you know, 10 solar masses versus a star like our sun that's one solar mass, yeah, our sun might have a lifetime of around 10 to 12 billion years. Uh, but a star that's 10 times as massive is probably going to live only. 10 to 12 million years. It's only going to live a few tens of millions of years before it burns through its core fuel and dies. So if we're looking at all the stars around us and the youngest star is 100 million years old, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't have these most massive stars because if we did, they'd be dead by now. Uh, and by the same token, these M dwarf stars, these red dwarf stars, uh, they might only have 10% of the mass of the sun. So instead of living 10 billion years, they might live 10 trillion years before dying, much longer than the current age of the universe. So maybe it shouldn't be that surprising that we've seen so many red dwarf, low mass, low luminosity stars close to us because none of them have died, whereas some fraction of many of the others uh, possibly even all of the others at the high mass end, uh, have died relatively close by us. I think that's actually, I haven't thought about that in ages, but yeah, that's, that's exactly, exactly it. There's two big factors that govern how common is any one type of star. Number one is how often does that type of star form? Big stars versus small stars form at different rates. And then the other one is how long they live. So there's kind of this double whammy of like your large, your most massive stars, they form less frequently and then they, they flame out so much more quickly. Whereas the very low mass stars, they form more frequently and also they live basically forever. And so their most massive ones end up extremely underrepresented or extremely, extremely uncommon rather. And your least massive ones end up extremely common instead of just like common versus uncommon. So, I don't know, it's astronomy, so of course it's a world of extremes. Astronomical. So I would think then, if you wanted to better understand all of the stars in the universe, not just the ones nearby, then what you would do is you would look at different regions throughout the universe, in the galaxy, in the local group, uh, where you had... Um, you know, stars that were forming right now, where you had like active star forming regions or young star clusters where where the stars haven't really had that much time for the most massive ones to die. And then you can sort of ask, okay, well, when we formed them, what did the distribution of different types of stars look like? And then based on what we see in our own backyard, um, what can we infer about what's out there beyond the limits? Like if we can only see stars that are blue and white and yellow, but not the ones that are orange or red because they're too faint, um, but we can see the slightly blue and then white and yellow and orange and red and even the brown dwarfs nearby us, um, what can we infer that's beyond the limits of what we can see in those other regions? Um, so I guess there would be sort of a combination of data sets from different sources that investigate different things. And eventually, hopefully, you'll be able to come up with, oh, 
well, when you form stars from a gas cloud this massive that has this ratio of heavy elements in it, here are the types of stars you're going to form in what relative numbers and abundances. Um, is that is that is that the grand plan? <laughs> I'd say, you know, I haven't thought about it that way, but that's pretty pretty much it. Because as you're talking about, okay, we want to look at star forming regions. I'm thinking yes, but we need to take into account how what the environment is in that star forming region. And then that's exactly what you would do. Now, I'll be I'll be happy enough if other people do it though, because um, high mass stars are complicated in their own way. They have lots of fun things happening with respect to winds and things like that. So it's it's a lot. There's a lot of physics that happens there. So it's it really require they really require all the help the help they can get. On the other hand, when you look at star forming regions, you also see things like disks around stars because the stars are very young. And I think we're seeing in a lot of disks now gaps where planets are forming, and that's pretty that's pretty interesting too. So in that sense, that is part of the grand plan. No grand plan now that I think about it. Well, there's there's lots of different adjacent and overlapping fields out there, and I think um, there's there's no shortage of problems you're gonna run into to solve. Let me ask you, um, some of the things that are big open questions today, some of the things we don't know the answer to in your field, um, what are you looking forward to us figuring out? And are there any uh, either current or future or proposed missions that can help us answer those questions? I think the things that I am most interested in figuring out are oh there's so many things <laughs> so i'm thinking about this pretty carefully so one of the most one of the most complicated things i think in the field of planet stars and planets and everything in between is what makes a planet's atmosphere the way it is today and specifically the earth's atmosphere is complicated enough and it's gone through several different phases. So as we de detect more and more planets, people are are really getting concerned now with, okay, well, we know that where these planets are, we know roughly how big they are, but if I wanna know whether they can have life, I need to understand whether they have an atmosphere. And it turns out atmospheres are so complicated. I mean, it's this mix of gases, it depends on how much heat is coming from the interior of the planet versus the star versus what other sort of planets and stuff is around there's a bunch of things that we cannot detect that might have an effect like how many little asteroids might be hitting it over the over its lifetime all these things are going to influence your atmosphere and it's it's funny because i don't i wouldn't consider myself an atmosphere person but at the same time that's kind of the goal if i want to find out where we're going to find life in the universe i need to understand which atmospheres are interesting which atmospheres are a no-go. So, and this is the thing that the JWST is supposed to really help out with, because if we if we see the light pass through a planet's atmosphere, we know very, very well what that light should look like if it were not passing through the atmosphere. Then we can figure out what is actually in that planet's atmosphere. So we're thinking about planets that they cross from the stars. And 
when you describe it like that, it sounds very easy, but it turns out it's extremely complicated to figure out. So this is the thing that I'm most excited about seeing in the end, though. I mean, I think it's going to depend a lot on how, what, what elements are available when that planet is forming, what, how bright the star was while that planet was forming, how big the planet is, how massive that planet is, whatever well, the other planets are nearby. All these things are going to come into play with how each planet looks and what's happening in its atmosphere. And I mean, my own contribution to this is I'm really interested in what are what are all the other bodies and systems and how are they all moving with respect to each other. So if I could play any sort of role in helping people figure out atmospheres, that would be the most amazing thing, honestly. So I think the nice thing about the JWST is we have data coming out of it now. From what I see on social media, people are getting data in their inboxes and it looks phenomenal. We've seen, there's been pictures coming out and everything. So I think we will have some really interesting results just in the next couple of years on this topic, but it's going to take, I don't know, maybe a decade at least at, at best of people figuring out this really, really complicated puzzle. Because remember also, we don't have just Earths out there. We have, you know, things a little smaller than Earth, a little bigger than Earth. We have Jupiters. We have planets that there's no solar system analog for. So there's a lot of fun material that's going to be covered and just what's happening on the surface of these planets. So. Yeah, that's what I'm excited about. You know, that's that's really fascinating. I bet adjacently you'd also be really excited about uh, not just the data from JWST, but also the data uh, that will come from the new generation of 30-meter class ground-based telescopes and also from, uh, as you mentioned, the next upcoming NASA flagship mission after James Webb and after... Nancy Roman, this um, large aperture optical ultraviolet infrared telescope, um, because we're not only going to be doing uh, transiting exoplanets, where you measure the filtered starlight that goes through the planet's atmosphere and arrives at your eyes to see what gets absorbed and therefore what's present, but we're also looking ahead to being able to do direct imaging of exoplanets and do spectroscopy on those directly image exoplanets. And so I think that even when you don't get the perfect alignment that you need to get uh, starlight filtering through a planet's atmosphere, you can still measure, well, what gets absorbed, what gets transmitted, what gets reflected, what are the presence of various species of gases and clouds and what are the various compositions in the atmosphere there that that direct imaging of these exoatmospheres or these exoplanets with atmospheres has got to be something that you're also really enthused about you know i hadn't even it wasn't even totally on my radar but now that you bring this up it's going to be amazing because you know what the other thing about that is it's going to be perfectly complementary or hopefully perfectly, it's going to be quite complementary to, to the light going through the atmospheres of the planets because the the kinds of planets that you can directly image will, for the most part, end up being these ones that are on longer orbits because it'll be easier if they're further away from their star, right? Whereas the ones that pass in front of their star make, you know, we measure the light coming through the planet's atmosphere and get the atmosphere that way, will tend to be more shorter period planets. 
And so it's going to be really phenomenal to have both these sets and to see, okay, what kinds of similarities and differences do I see from these closer planets versus further planets? Especially if they are all, you know, big gassy planets with, that you would imagine being similar to Jupiter. But now we'll actually get to see, okay, how similar are their atmospheres based on how close and far they are from their star. So, yeah, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I think I think the rule of thumb I learned is that with uh, JWST, we'll be able to get um, we'll be able to get transiting exoplanet spectra for super Earth size planets. You know, planets of about twice the the radius of Earth um, in Earth like orbits around Sun like stars, which is great but not exactly what we're looking for. But by the time uh, we get to that next generation of flagship telescope, uh, they actually expect to be able to do direct imaging of Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars that they think the coronagraphs will be that good that, you know, hopefully 20 years from now, uh, that's exactly the type of measurements we'll be talking about taking. And if you are curious about life in the universe, um, you know, I, I not only encourage you to be excited about that, I really encourage you to expand your mind beyond thinking about Earth-like planets around sun-like stars and to start thinking about uh, planets of different sizes and masses, some hotter and some colder, around the more common types of stars in the universe. Um, you know, even if your odds of winning the lottery are lower, uh, if you get uh, 20 times as many lottery tickets, that might actually mean that the most common type of life that emerges or the most common place for life to emerge might not be on a planet like Earth at all. Uh, you know, when when you're the only example of success that you know of, you run into this problem that you have no idea what the odds are of winning the other prizes or even what the other prizes really are. And I, I hope every day that whatever the grand prize for life is in the universe, that we aren't it. It's a really fantastic analogy. So Elliot, I really want to thank you for a fascinating and far-ranging conversation here today. Um, I'm sure that our listeners have learned a lot and uh, are very pleased to have gotten to know you a little bit better. Can I ask you, um, with all that we've talked about and all that you're thinking about, um, do you have any final messages that you would like to leave our listeners with? I mean, I think the very best final message is kind of what you already said, which is the, the, the best thing we can do in astronomy or in science in general is to start looking for the unexpected thing and to do our very best to sort of drop all of our preconceived notions about whatever it is that we're looking for. You know, you don't want, don't look for just the binary systems, but start asking yourself, okay, what is there a chance that there's a third star in here, a fourth star, or a fifth or a sixth star in here? And, you know, maybe I don't, maybe don't look at just for the, just the Earths around sun-like stars, but let's start thinking about super-Earths around sun-like stars. What about super-Earths around really low-mass stars? There's, 
a huge variety of things out there and we're going to need to know every bit of it that we can in order to understand everything in the universe and not just things that are already like us already. I think that's always worth thinking about every time you read any sort of result in astronomy is, oh, but what if? So I don't know. I want people to not stop asking that, I think. I think that's a wonderful message. You know, don't don't stop asking the questions. Uh, don't let your biases about what you know keep you from being curious about what you don't know, what you haven't discovered, and don't let it close your mind to possibilities that might not be intuitive to you based on your own experiences. I I love that thought, and thank you, Elliot, for for being my guest this month on the Starts With a Bang podcast. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level to us and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chuist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Chikutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Seagreen Mangrove, Stefan Berniger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Kilia Opu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire. Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelin, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Nader, Glenn McDavid, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Herzakian, Steve Schaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Pikarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Youngko S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Starts With a Bang.